Well, amen. Thank you, Mark, for that uh, encouragement in song. You know, I was talking to uh, Pat uh, before the service started, and we both agreed that one of the highlights of the entire service for us is when all the kids uh, come running down the aisles to go to children's church. And wouldn't it be nice if we were all that enthusiastic about coming to church? <laughs> I think it would be wonderful. Maybe we are, maybe we just can't run anymore. Maybe that's the problem. I know Lane Kennedy said he can't run anymore very well. So, anyway. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. You know, there's a lot of things that we fear. We may not like to admit our fears readily to other people. But we're all afraid of things. And we live in a world where there's a lot of fear. I mean, a lot of fear. According to research published by the National Institute of Mental Health, 60% of the things that people fear will never actually take place. 60%, can you imagine? 30% of the things that people fear actually happened in the past and can't even be changed at this point. 90% of the things feared by people are considered to be insignificant issues. 90%. 88% of things feared are in relation to health concerns that will never happen. People are afraid that they will get some disease, even though they don't have really the signs of it or they haven't been diagnosed with it, certainly. They're afraid that they might get it and they spend a significant portion of their time fearing that that might ultimately lead to their death. 6.3 million people have been clinically diagnosed with a phobia. People fear a lot of things, but, but these are the ones that have actually been diagnosed with phobias. The top ten phobias, in fact, are these. Fear of thunder and lightning by 2% of the population. Anybody afraid of thunder and lightning? Fear of open spaces is number nine, suffered by 2.2% of the population. Fear of confined spaces by 2.5%. Fear of flying by 6.5%. Fear of people and social situations by 7.9%. Fear of heights by 10%. Fear of darkness by 11%. Fear of spiders by 30.5%. Fear of death, 68%. 68% of people fear death. And the number one fear, you probably heard this before, is of public speaking. 74% of the population. That means that three quarters of you, if you had to get up here today and give this sermon, you'd be too scared to do it. But 25% of you may not have a problem. Franklin Roosevelt famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, there are times and there are situations where we really don't know how to react. Our fear kind of takes control, and we don't really know how to react. John was in that kind of predicament. As he got this word from the Lord, as Christ spoke to him, 
and reveal these things through him, it was hard for him to know at times exactly how to react. It was an overwhelming situation. It was a once in a lifetime situation. Even though he was an old man, he'd never seen anything like these things before. He was seeing this vision of Christ and he was indeed struggling to make sense of it all. The fear of the unknown crept in for him, but he was quickly comforted by the Lord. We serve a God of great comfort, and even though we indeed have to face a lot of scary things, a lot of difficult things, we don't have to fear them or face them alone. God is the God of great comfort. In fact, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able then to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. How does a person comfort another person? When I was pastor at Boone Creek Baptist Church in Licking, Missouri, I served there for about two and a half years. And during that time, I preached 23 funerals. Now, we didn't have that many church members die. We did have quite a few, but a lot of them were ones where the funeral home would call and say, uh, someone has passed away and we need someone to do their service. And would you be willing? Would you be available? And one thing I learned early on in ministry is I never turned down an opportunity to do a funeral because a funeral is a time that you can really do some ministry to people. You can really engage in some good ministry uh, during people's times of bereavement. In a lot of cases, it was the only way I would meet these people. I didn't know them. They would call and I would be uh, have thrust upon me the duty of coming in and bringing comfort and words of encouragement to someone who had lost a loved one. Now how on earth could I preach that many funerals in that amount of time and still offer, offer comfort to other people? How did I have it in me to give it to others? Well, the way I was able to do that was because I myself was being comforted by the Lord. I opened up His Word every day. I read its pages. I was memorizing Scripture. I was spending time with Him in prayer. I was going to church. And so I, I, was, I was able to replenish myself so that I was then able to go out and comfort other people. We all, as believers need to be able to comfort one another. In fact, we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, as he's talking about the Lord's return and how that our suffering is uh, not anything that we should fear or fret about, and even death itself has had the sting taken out of it. He ends that whole section there, and he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We don't have to fear anything anymore. We are... Serving the God of great comfort. God is great and he comforts his believers. So the Apostle John here, this is the third part of this vision that we're looking at. And we've been looking at in chapter one. 
It's a scary thing. Here he is, he's exiled to this island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And the next thing you know, hes it's almost like he's hallucinating. He's seeing strange things. He's hearing strange things that he doesn't understand. It's hard to make sense of it all, but Christ comes in and he comforts him. Notice with me in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. And I invite you to stand as we read from God's holy word. In verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You that we can come before this text of Scripture today and be comforted by it, as we know You are the God of great comfort, just as You comforted John, Your servant. Comfort us now, we pray. Challenge us, we pray. Help us to understand these words. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're seated. First thing we see in our passage here today is the characteristics of Christ. The very characteristics of Christ. John falling down at the Lord's feet here was something of a natural response. In Isaiah chapter 6, really the calling of Isaiah... Isaiah falls down at the feet of the Lord in worship of Him. Why? Because he is overwhelmed in the moment when he sees what? The holiness of the Lord. In fact, we read in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, His response was, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. What Isaiah is saying there is, how could I respond any other way? How could I be in the presence of God like this and not be overwhelmed? How could I stand there and not fall at His feet? How can we so casually enter the presence of God, it seems? Many today are taking all things related to God very casually so many people are treating it like it's no big deal you either do church or you don't you either read the word or read the bible or you don't you either sing or you don't i mean everything it seems we approach casually but when we look into scripture we see that coming into the presence of god was not a casual kind of thing in Ezekiel, five different times, as Ezekiel saw visions of the Lord, the text says this was his response. It says, he fell on his face. 
He fell on his face. Daniel had visions of the Lord, and it says his face was to the ground. That was his response to being in the presence of God. When Manoah, who was Samson's father, saw a vision after the angel of the Lord appeared to him and his wife, he said, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. When Saul and the other men that were journeying with him on that Damascus road, when the vision of Christ appeared to Paul, or Saul who then became Paul, it says they fell prostrate on the road. Their response wasn't, hey Lord, how you doing? Or to say, well, you you deal with the Lord here, Paul. We're going to go over here and play marbles under a tree. Now, the response was one of awe. They were awestruck. Where is the sense of awestruckness in our world gone when it comes to the things of God? Where is that holy reverence that we see such great examples of throughout the Bible? But in the midst of His overwhelming presence, the Lord still comforts people. I mean, even though people come and they're in awe of Him, Still, the Lord effectively puts His hand on our shoulder and says, Be comforted, my child. Son, be comforted. My daughter, be comforted. And that's exactly what He was doing with the Apostle John here. Even though John was overwhelmed, the Lord is saying to him, Do not be afraid. He said, remember, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the bookends of history. You don't need to worry about it. I've got this thing under control. Totally and fully under control. God comforted His people in Isaiah's day. He wrote to them in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 10. He said, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Paul wrote to the Romans these words of comfort in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, where he says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors, through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here in verse 17, Jesus comforts with His loving words, Do not be afraid. You ever had a mother or a father at a time when you were afraid? Said, don't be afraid. There's nothing to be scared of. Nothing to be afraid of. We've gotten a little afraid at times that maybe we wouldn't want to admit that we were afraid. Maybe it was as our first day of high school approached. And we had butterflies in our stomach because we didn't know what to expect. We wondered if we could do the work that we knew would be harder. We wondered if 
others would pick on us or we'd be able to handle it. As we got ready maybe to leave home and go off to college, even though we were gung-ho about going, maybe there was a part of us that was fearful about stepping out on our own in such a way uh, extraordinary to what we had been used to. When we get a new job that first day, we may not sleep well the night before. Why? Because we're afraid. We're a little bit scared. We don't know what to expect. Will we be able to do the work? Will we be able to hold our job? Will we like our co-workers? And there's a lot of reasons. Fear is a part of life. But it doesn't have to be. Why? Because we're told by our Lord... Do not be afraid. Got this thing under control. It's nothing to worry about. He reminds them that he is indeed the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. In verse 18, Jesus gives a concise summary of the whole gospel truth. Verse 18 says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. This is the gospel in a nutshell. He said, I'm alive, but I was dead. In other words, I died on the cross for your sins. But behold, I'm not only alive now, I'm alive forever. I'm alive forevermore, eternally. And I have the power, I have the control over death, over hell, everything. Place your trust in me, he is saying. This is about his becoming a man, dying on the cross, rising again, ultimately now living in a glorified resurrection state with the Heavenly Father. When he mentioned the keys of Hades and of death, he is describing Christ's authority over all who have already physically died and over their present place of rest, which will be emptied and destroyed at the time of the great white throne judgment as Revelation chapter 20 Verses 11 through 15 tell us. Now, Hades, the place or the term Hades, is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament Sheol, or the place of the dead, or sometimes uh, simply referred to as the grave. Now, the important thing to understand here is that Jesus Christ has authority, all authority, over life and death. I remember when I was growing up, we've just come through vacation Bible school here, so this is fresh on my mind. The theme song with vacation Bible school is something that's sung over and over uh, during the week, as you know. But there's one song from vacation Bible school in my childhood that I still remember after all these years. I remember on a Sunday night, real late, my grandfather died. And I woke up the next morning, on Monday morning, which was also the kickoff day of vacation Bible school. And I found out, my dad told me that my grandfather had went home to be with Jesus. 
And I was about eight or nine years old at the time. And I remember going then. I didn't want to go to Bible school that day. I didn't really feel like it. I was sad and, and hurt, hurting, obviously. But I remember the theme song that year was a song called Jesus, I Believe in You. And there was a line in that song that says, You are Lord over sickness, death, and the grave. And all these years, I think that was in 1980, I remember all these years later, that line. Why? Because for the first time in my life, death had become a real thing. It wasn't just somebody that sat on a church pew that I didn't even know their name had died at church as a kid, or it wasn't some distant uh, great uncle in another state, but it was my own grandfather who I knew so well. Jesus is saying here that he is Lord over that. He is Lord over the grave. And that, that's what I learned even as a small boy. That God's got this thing under control. And yeah, death is ugly. Death is painful. Death is, is, is hurtful. It's an ugly thing. In fact, Paul refers to it as the sting of death. But then he goes on to say how that Christ has actually taken the sting out of death. Imagine this. How scary would a, a bee or a wasp be if they didn't have stingers? So what if they land on your arm or they land on your head? They don't have a stinger. What can they do? If all of a sudden all of these flying insects didn't have stingers anymore, the people that sell raid and hot shot and all those things wouldn't be very happy. Why? Because people wouldn't care. Bring them on. That's what Jesus has done. He's taken the stinger out of death. It doesn't have the impact that it once did. He's changed everything. John, just like all true believers, Christians, had nothing to fear since Christ had already delivered him from death and Hades through his own death, dying in John's and in our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice next with me the command to write concerning Christ. We see that in verse 19. In verse 11 Jesus had already commanded what you see right. John is dealing here with a sort of tension between fear and assurance. And we kind of are in that place, aren't we? Sometimes, some days we feel great assurance, but other times we feel more fear than we do assurance. And we want those days of fear to be replaced by the days of assurance. He was reminded, though, to have assurance, to be assured, but he was also reminded to write. It was his duty, in fact, to write. Now, there are three things that he is specifically commanded to write. He's to write the things that he has seen. In other words, a reference to the past. 
What you've already seen, write those things down. He's also told to write the things in the present, the things that you see now. And that is a reference to the seven churches that he has specific messages for that we'll be covering in chapters 2 and 3 starting next week. And also, the third thing is the things that will take place. The things that will take place surely after this. And that's mainly a reference to uh, chapters 4 through 22 of this book of Revelation. The things which are present is referring to the letters to the seven churches given in chapters 2 and 3, which state the current condition of the church in that time. And you almost wonder how that such a short time after being founded by the Lord that the church could have so many problems. You look at this and you think this has got to be at least a few hundred years down the road as you read the specific uh, issues and problems and things going on in these churches. But it's not. It's just a few decades after the church was formed. But how quickly our humanness comes in and starts corrupting, it seems, everything. We're not careful. Our humanness comes to control what should be controlled by the Lord Himself. The Lord has got to be in control of any true New Testament church. And not man. Or we're right back here with all these indictments against the church that he gives in chapters 2 and 3. All believers have a duty to pass on, though, to others the truths that they learn from Scripture and all Bible-based teaching. That is our job. That is our duty. We all should be able to tell others. Just as he told John here to write these things down, which you have seen, which you've experienced, the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Every believer, though, needs to be able to tell about what has happened in their past, their personal testimony. They need to be able to share with the world or any other person about their present relationship with Christ. And they need to be able to share about God's future promises revealed in His Word concerning Christ. We look around and we see what's going on in the world today. We ought to be able to, with urgency and with passion, share in a lost world and say, look at the signs of the times. Look, God has said in His Word that this world is not going to carry on forever. And you see His plan coming together right before our very eyes. What an exciting time to be witnessing these things. What an exciting time to observe what God is doing. So often we focus on what we think God is not doing. And we look around and we say, oh, well, I remember it used to be different. And, and I remember I used to be able to do this and I can't do it anymore. God is still working. God, God is beyond our limitations. God is beyond... The, the frailty of all things earthly. And He's doing a mighty work. And He's doing it with power. And He's doing it with uh, assurance. The stability that believers have is a tremendous stability 
that the world does not have. The world is up and down. The economy's up, the economy's down. The stock market's up, the stock market's down. Price of gas is up and down and up and down. People's personal finances are up and down and all over the place. Doing good for a while, then a major expense comes in and wipes us out. And we're just all over the map. But in the midst of all of the instability we perceive in our lives, Christ is that stable fixture. He's fixed. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God shall abide forever. It shall stand forever. We don't have to worry about whether God's word's going to become obsolete. I've had people tell me before, why do you trust in that dusty old book? I've literally had people tell me that before. Why do you trust in a dusty old book? Why don't you read something newer? Well, I do. And you know what those things do? They point me right back to that dusty old book. (laughs) They really do. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. It means everything you see, everything you've ever experienced, it's fleeting away. It's passing away. And it can happen quickly. Ever seen the devastation left by a tornado or a hurricane or a tsunami? We hear about these things, and maybe we've seen some of those things in our lifetime. But devastation is what is left behind. When Jesus spoke these words in Matthew chapter 24, that's exactly what was going on. He's saying this world is going to be leveled. It was leveled once by a flood in the days of Noah, and Bible Peter, God spoke through Peter saying that it's going to be destroyed a second time, so as by fire. There's nothing going to be left. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. But my words are eternal, he is saying. Notice finally, in verse 20, the church is addressed by Christ. The seven stars in Christ's right hand are the angels or heavenly messengers who have been entrusted by Christ with responsibility for the seven churches. Some have said the angels of the seven churches were actual guardian angels of sorts. Well, others have said that uh, the angels were the pastors of those churches. There's a problem with either one of those two things, and it is this. There's really no precedent anywhere else in Scripture for making a definitive case that it could be either one of those two things. Now, we can't rule it out. We can't say we absolutely know that it is not that. But it would be different than God's normal pattern of the way that terms are used and we understand uh, words. Angels are different than man. And to equate a pastor with an angel seems like a bit of a stretch here. Probably the best way to interpret this is this. And that is to view the seven 
angels of the seven churches as really a sort of a universal symbol that represents the heavenly and the supernatural character of the church. In fact, there should always be a supernatural character to any genuine church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we, if we say, well, when you come right down to it, we could gather every week and we've got our bulletin to, to follow and we've got our newsletter that gives us information and we sing and we have preaching and we have an invitation and we have an offering and everything just kind of runs on autopilot. And really, when you come right down to it, we could kind of do exactly what we do without the Lord. Now, we wouldn't want to admit that, but a lot of churches are just kind of on autopilot, and they're not really seeking the Lord or His leadership anymore. I, when I was um, in seminary, I didn't pastor for a, a couple of years, and I did pulpit supply, supply preaching a lot of times, and I would often have to go way out somewhere, a couple hours away to a little rural church or something somewhere. And a lot of those churches... I mean, it just seemed so dead as you walked in. They didn't have any desire to do anything. I mean, some of those churches, you get to asking them, and it could have been 10 years, it could have been 15 years since the last person they baptized. Some churches weren't even trying to reach out anymore. One guy told me one time as I went out to one of these churches, he said, well, we're all related to one another and we just kind of have our own church here and we're happy with that. Isn't that something? We're happy with that. We don't want to reach anybody else for Christ. What a tragedy. What an indictment upon his words. What an indictment upon the attitude of that kind of church. But there are a lot of churches out there. Statistics are showing that there are a significant number of churches, even thousands of churches now, in our convention that go, that, that, that in a given year don't baptize a single person. That is tragic. The overall emphasis of verse 20 rests on the immediate presence of Christ. And if Christ isn't present, and if He doesn't have an immediate presence in a church, it's not functioning as a New Testament church. Not only, just because a church or a, a group puts a sign out front, so, oh, we're a church, that doesn't make them a church. To be a truly functioning New Testament church, one must be being led by Christ. The church belongs to Him. And if they're not following Him, then they're not functioning as a New Testament church. The seven lampstands and the seven stars are linked with the seven churches showing their purpose in shining the glory of Christ in the midst of a dark world. Think of these comparisons. In a dark room, a lamp, or certainly these lampstands with seven lights on them, would have they would have illumined the room. They would have overcome the darkness. Think about the stars in the night sky. If there weren't stars, you'd look up and you'd just see blackness. But you see all these little dots of light up there. They're reflecting light off of the sun. That's what gives them their light. And they illumine the sky. They break up the darkness 
that is all around them. Think about the church. How does the church function in the world? The world is a dark place. The world is an evil place. Look at what people are entertained by these days. Look at the ways they spend their money. Look at the kinds of things and behaviors they engage in. And don't even think that much about doing so anymore because life for them is all about the pursuit of happiness. We live in a hedonistic culture, the extreme pursuit of pleasure. People don't care much anymore about their behavior and what they do. Just pursuing the next high or the next goal or the next uh, promise of happiness. But think about the church. The church is to be that light in a dark world. In the midst of a darkened culture, the church is to shine forth with brilliance. To shine forth with strength and with clarity, exposing all that is around it. The lamps on the lampstand work together for a single purpose. The stars in the sky work together in harmony with singleness of purpose. The churches of the Lord Jesus Christ are meant to work together with singleness of purpose, shedding light in the darkness of this world. The vision that John experienced revealed Christ to those who needed to see something encouraging in the midst of a very discouraging time. The same encouragement he offered long ago is still offered to us today. By receiving him as Lord and Savior of your life, you're guaranteed an eternity to be spent with Him in His presence. We're not going to be worried about all the activities we'll engage in. So many people look at heaven and they think, well, I want to take my favorite earthly activities with me, and I sure hope I'll get to do that in heaven. We're going to be given new bodies, and our, we're going to be also be given new priorities. And we're not going to be so concerned about our earthly pursuits there. We are going to, first and foremost, relish in being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to be enough. That doesn't satisfy many today. And the thought of that to the world is silly and it's even laughable. This world doesn't care about that. The world just cares about their next fishing trip or their next golf game or their next get-together with the ladies for tea or their next trip to the lake, or their next camping trip, or whatever they do, whatever brings them pleasure, that's all they care about. And they really don't uh, understand life beyond next weekend, or their vacation, or Christmas uh, break, or whatever. By receiving Christ as Lord, though, and as Savior, a person's life is guaranteed to be spent in the eternal presence of God in heaven. So I ask you that with that in mind this morning, do you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Is He in control? Is He a master of your life? Today, you can receive Him as your Lord and Savior. It's as simple as turning from your sins, repenting of your sins, 
and asking Him to come and take control of your life. And He'll forever change you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we bow before You in Your presence today, we ask, Lord, that if there's someone here who has never turned from their sins and turned toward You, we pray that today that You might draw them by the convicting power of Your Holy Spirit to come and begin a new relationship with You. Lord, there may be needs for church membership. There may be needs for recommitment. There may be needs for other things. Some of us may be going through personal struggles and we just need to kneel at the altar and give that all over to You. Whatever the needs are in this place today, we pray, dear Jesus, that You would meet them. Bless now, we ask, in this time of invitation. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we stand together and sing.